From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Jen Chavez. The Riot Girl movement was about more than just music. It encompassed politics, feminism, culture, and zines, too. The movement was born 30 years ago here in the Pacific Northwest, and its impact is still being felt today. OPB's new podcast, Starting a Riot, tells the story of Riot Girl's history and its legacy today. We're going to play the first episode for you today. The podcast is hosted by musician Fabi Reina of the band Reina Tropical. Do you remember the first time you saw live music after the pandemic started? For Kirsten Studley, it was at the Crystal Ballroom, one of the larger music venues in Portland, Oregon. We're just mega stoked to be doing this and to be able to be here tonight. It's hard to kind of balance between like... uh, the fact that, you know, they're sort of a DIY-level band, at least that's how they started, but also the fact that, to me, they feel like royalty, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's just, it's really, really epic to be able to be here. The band she came to see was Bikini Kill. I really connected with them when I was going through a really tough time in my life, and they really became like an, oh, I'm getting emotional, <laughs> um, like an outlet, like, to get me through that time. It was really impactful to me and I'm very excited to be here yeah I didn't think this would be possible you know they they broke up when I was 11 years old so (laughs) it's very 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 cool to be here today yeah yeah they originally formed in Olympia Washington in 1990 and they helped to start a subculture that would see its effects seep into the mainstream and continue today the movement came to be called riot girl That's girl, spelled with no I and three R's. It's meant to be pronounced with a sort of growl. Bikini Kill might be the most well-known band associated with the movement, but... This isn't a podcast about Bikini Kill. This is about Riot Girl, the whole movement, what it is and what it isn't. I'm Fabi Reina, founder of She Shreds Media. For me, live music is like going to church or ceremony. As a performer, I understand the need to hold space for people to feel like they belong, like things make sense. It's an energetic exchange between the people on stage and the audience, and for a long time, women, or anyone who wasn't a cis man, were missing from that equation. As a teenager, I was convinced that women didn't really play music. I never saw anyone like me, a brown queer femme guitarist, on the cover of any magazines, or anywhere really. You can probably name most well-known women musicians before the 90s on two hands. Joan Jett. Wanda Jackson, Janis Joplin, Heart. Most of them were white and recognized as singers or singer-songwriters. It was actually rare to see a woman on stage with an instrument. 
There were women playing in punk and rock bands before the early 90s, but they weren't in community with each other. They weren't a movement. In fact, they were often pitted against each other. You know, it was like we were in a dark cave and there was not even a candle to reflect us back to ourselves, you know? Nothing. June Millington and her sister Jean started playing music together as kids. This was in the 60s, after they moved to the U.S. from the Philippines. They formed their first band when they were still in high school. June played guitar, Jean played bass. Later on, the Millington sisters and two other friends formed the band Fanny. Fanny was a really big deal. They were one of the first commercially successful rock bands made up of all women. And you've probably never heard of them. In spite of their musical talent, they were originally signed to a major label as a novelty act. That's what a band made up of four women looked like to white male record executives in the 70s. And when they got a write-up in the New York Times, the headline was Fanny, a four-girl rock group, poses a challenge to male ego. The guy says, oh yeah, they're really good, but what's it gonna do to the male ego? Dude, did you have to say that? Did you have to say that? You know, it was like, it's like he had the brakes on the whole time. Millington says that the only thing she felt like her band could do was to prove that women could play music on the same level as guys. And they just couldn't go much further than that. So when she sees Riot Girl bands and all the women musicians who've come after them, she relishes watching them headline festivals and play to sold-out crowds. Yeah, man, they, they are our revenge. <laughs> and it's not served cold, I'll tell you that. It is hot. It's warm. It's far-reaching. It's going to punch you in the chest right where you need it. <laughs> yeah, and you can quote me on that, damn it. Riot Girls started in the early 90s, 20 years after the New York Times insulted Fanny with that terrible headline. But even then, if you weren't a cis man, there was no blueprint as to how to be a musician. No community, no shared language, nothing. Riot Girl changed that. This is starting a riot. For me, music has always been a tool for self-awareness, expression, and connection. I was born in Mexico and a few years later moved to the border of Texas a small town named McAllen, where I was gifted my first little toy guitar, the plastic kind that you get at a corner store. I couldn't really play it, but I just wanted to hold it all the time. It wasn't until I moved to Austin, Texas, at nine years old, that I started to actually play the instrument. And at 13, I was studying classical guitar. But I wanted to be in a band and feel like I was a part of a crew. At that time, in 2007, even in a big city like Austin, it felt impossible to be taken seriously as a girl who played guitar. And honestly, being told that I couldn't do something that felt so necessary to my well-being was discouraging. I wanted to give up. Then my mom found an ad for the Rock and Roll Camp for Girls in Portland, Oregon. She drove us 2,053 miles where I found myself in this sort of broken down warehouse in the middle of North Industrial Portland. I had no idea that this place would pretty much change my life. Hey, 
If you've never heard of it before, the Rock and Roll Camp for Girls was just what it sounds like. A summer camp that encouraged girls, non-binary, and trans teenagers to play instruments, form bands, write songs, and learn together. A big part of that was teaching campers the history of women in rock. At rock camp, I heard the Riot Girl band Heavens to Betsy for the first time. Listening to these songs, I remember sitting there and thinking, I want to play like that. A few years later, I got accepted into the California Institute of the Arts for classical guitar. But instead, I decided to go on a U.S. tour with an all-femme punk band called Sex Hair. It was then, at 18 years old, that I became part of a strong community of women non-binary and queer musicians. Throughout the month-long tour across the country, playing basements and staying with people who came to those shows, I found myself repeating the words, she shreds, over and over. I was watching femmes on stage going, she shreds. And after I got back from that tour, I started the world's first and only print publication dedicated to women and non-binary guitarists. I named it She Shreds Magazine. I'm 31 now, and I've realized that the history we know is purely dependent on the person who's telling it. Riot Girl kicked open a door that women had been prying open for decades. And the history of Riot Girl that I've been told just doesn't feel representative of me. A brown, queer, soft butch femme. I want to explore the history of Riot Girl and really lean into that gap. I want to hear from people on the margins, people who felt left out, people who insisted on being a part of the conversation anyway. Wendy Yao was one of those people. Discovering Riot Girl, I encountered people who were kind of speaking truth about women's like lived experiences that we weren't supposed to talk about and a feminist point of view, which I hadn't really been exposed to. Wendy Yao and her sister Amy grew up in LA and found Riot Girl when they were in middle school. They were articulating things and giving a vocabulary to things that I had always been feeling deep in my gut, but never really had the words for and didn't even know I was like allowed to talk about or think about. The sisters and their friend Emily Ryan started a band called Emily Sassy Lime, which is one of the best band names ever. It's a palindrome. Wendy remembers that they wrote songs and practiced together over the phone. We weren't a band that was actively practicing or had the support or like permission to be in a band from our parents. And so we were just like making do with what we could. But then there were so many people who were just so accepting of that and, and like really were totally okay with the fact that we were so, like we were held together by scotch tape for real. That DIY spirit was a core Riot Girl value. For some, this meant forming a band while still learning to play an instrument. To others, it meant writing and stapling together their own zines. We'll have a whole episode devoted to zines. 
And part of the power of the movement was the way it changed the traditional relationship between fans and performers. Yao says seeing riot girl bands at small all-ages venues made music feel accessible. They're not like 20 feet away from the band, but you're like right up against them. You can really look, stare at their fingers and see how they're playing a bass or the drum set, you know, or the guitar and just like literally study how it's happening. So then you go home and then you try to do the same thing. They went to see Bikini Kill and other Riot Girl bands that came through L.A. And they made personal connections with bands, even opening for them on West Coast tours. In order to go on tour, the Yao sisters and their bandmate convinced their parents they were going to math camp, which is pretty amazing, if you ask me. That was definitely because it was before, you know, social media and before GPS or any of those things and even cell phones. And we'd go to a payphone and call them from wherever we were and then say that we were like at math camp. Emily Sassy Lime recorded onto cassette tapes using lo-fi equipment such as a karaoke machine. Yao remembers being inspired by an idea that Bikini Kill drummer Toby Vale articulated in her zine Jigsaw. She called it the impetus of imperfection. Talking about like how by exposing all the cracks in the way that you, you know, make a record or record or like letting the mistake kind of stay there, it's letting the people who consume that to understand that they're all just people making stuff and you could do it too and you don't have to be perfect and you can actually picture the real world circumstances under which people are like producing culture instead of this kind of invisible packaged thing that is only allowed to exist if it has tons of resources behind it and comes out perfect and shiny. All of a sudden, DIY didn't mean doing things all by yourself. It was more like doing it together. Riot Girl blurred the lines between music and activism. Riot Girl was a like decentralized, radical social movement before the internet decentralized everything. Sarah Marcus is a writer and a scholar. She's the author of Girls to the Front, the true story of the Riot Girl revolution. The title of the book comes from something that bands would shout out at shows. The idea was to try to make space for girls and women who wanted to dance close to the stage without the fear of being slammed into or groped by men. At the time, girls who came to punk shows usually didn't jump into the mosh pit. They were more likely to stand on the sidelines, holding coats and jackets that belonged to the guys who came to slam dance. Riot girl bands set out to make more space for women and girls, both on stage and in the audience. In Olympia... Riot girls would literally like hold hands in a line and charge to the front of the stage at a show. And once they got there, they would sort of plant their feet on the ground and hold that space in front of the stage and dance the way they wanted to dance and kind of dare anybody to come and mess with them. In her book, Marcus focuses on the U.S. bands at the center of the decentralized movement known as Riot Girl. You know, of course, Bikini Kill, where, you know, Kathleen Hanna was... I don't know how she feels, how she would feel about being called the founder of Riot Girl, but, you know, she definitely like did a lot of the key early writing, a lot of the manifestos, called the first meeting. And so her band Bikini Kill was, at least in the early years, pretty inextricable from the idea of Riot Girl as a phenomenon, as a movement. Um, the second major Riot Girl band is Brantmobile. Where again, you know, Molly and Allison especially were like key figures in the Riot Girl scene in Olympia. 
And then the third is Heavens to Betsy, which is Corin Tucker's band before Slater Kinney. And it's a duo band, her and her high school best friend, Tracy Sawyer. Members of these three bands met in Olympia, Washington. It's a small city on the I-5 corridor between Portland and Seattle. Nirvana is probably the most famous band to come out of the Olympia scene. They played shows in the same punk houses as Riot Girl bands. While Nirvana was riding the media-created wave that was grunge rock to superstardom, Riot Girls stayed largely in the underground. They focused on the mission of empowering young women and girls. But the movement quickly expanded outside of the Pacific Northwest. Bikini Kill and Bratmobile spent the summer of 1991 in Washington, D.C. It was there that Bikini Kill lead singer Kathleen Hanna started the first Riot Girl meetings. Weekly meetings also began in Olympia at that point. And over the course of the four, five, six years that Riot Girl was really in full effect, there were probably meetings in 20 or 30 different cities around the U.S., as well as places in Canada and the U.K., even uh, some, some countries farther afield. All of them involved some element of sharing personal experiences with sexism. In, in a lot of ways, they were really an updated version of the consciousness raising groups that were the primary kind of like theoretical and political engine of, you know, the women's liberation movement in the U.S. in the late 60s and early 70s. The groups would also often put on concerts, put on art shows, read things and discuss things together, make zines as groups. So it was this combination, right, of like generating political theory together, generating political community together, and then generating kind of aesthetic expressions of that theory and community out of that. Riot Girl expanded beyond music, and it was much bigger than just a group of people in Olympia, Washington. It was a new form of expression for young women. And it came at a time that was tense politically. My name is Anita F. Hill, and I am a professor of law at the University of Oklahoma. In 1991, Anita Hill testified in a public hearing alleging that Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas had repeatedly sexually harassed her when she worked for him at two different federal agencies. After a brief discussion of work, he would turn the conversation to a discussion of sexual matters. His conversations were very vivid. He spoke about acts that he had seen in pornographic films involving such matters as women having sex with animals and films showing group sex or rape scenes. This was unlike anything anyone had ever heard at a Supreme Court nomination hearing before. It had a profound effect on a lot of people. Allison Wolf of the band Bratmobile was in Washington, D.C. around that time. I remember in D.C. that someone had written really big on one of the building walls outside. Um, I believe her. And I don't even think they wrote Anita Hill. But we just knew, like all women knew, you know, we all knew. That inspired a lot of us, I think. Sarah Marcus points out that Anita Hill's testimony in these nationally televised hearings raised awareness about sexual harassment in a new way. And coming out right around the same time are actually some studies showing that to a degree people really had not been aware of before. Sexual harassment and sexual assault are affecting girls under the age of 18, that this is not just a kind of workplace grown women issue, but it's actually affecting teens and young women as well. 
this was something that many young women were aware of because it was happening to them and their friends. Bikini Kill drummer Toby Vale says, Riot Girl made space for girls and women to talk about this stuff. The people that Riot Girl and Bikini Kill appealed to most early on were people who were experiencing sexual abuse and violence at home. Teenage girls were facing another kind of threat as well. A 1992 Supreme Court decision reinforced the legal arguments for requiring parental consent or notification for minors seeking an abortion. In summing up today's decision, Justice Harry Blackman, author of the Roe decision, wrote, Now, just when so many expected the darkness to fall, the flame has grown bright. However, it's also true that that flame can be extinguished by one more vote. The court's ruling was an invitation to states to experiment with their own abortion restrictions, opening the way for years of legal and political wrangling. That same year, Heavens to Betsy released the song Baby's Gone. It's written from the perspective of a teenage girl who died after attempting to induce her own abortion. Tucker is probably best known as the lead singer and guitarist for Slater Kinney. Before that, she was one half of the Heavens to Betsy duo. She says she was inspired by other political movements that fearlessly declared, lives are at stake. I mean, there was ACT UP, right? That was like the huge influence, I think, on Riot Girl was like, you know, the kind of like really fierce gay activism that happened around AIDS in this country. ACT UP stood for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. It started in the late 80s and continued well into the 90s. This was a radical group that engaged in civil disobedience to draw attention to the AIDS pandemic. Their signature tactic was the die-in, where protesters would lie down in public spaces. ACT UP members famously created a giant condom and placed it over a senator's home. This was to protest legislation that restricted federal funding for AIDS education with references to homosexual activities. Like ACT UP and other radical movements, Riot Girl challenged the status quo. The women in the bands would use black sharpies to write words like slut on their bodies before getting on stage. That's sort of like the most powerful tool of the patriarchy is shame, is to feel bad about your body and not want to talk about it. And to be silent about things that, you know, make you feel shameful. And I think that was the greatest gift of Riot Girl and of, and of learning to play music was that it was like this way of like shaking all that off by ta- talking about things that were uncomfortable. Music is, it was this way of like just kind of opening that up mm. and mm-hmm. having those conversations and kind of freeing yourself in a way. For many people, Riot Girl made space for this kind of freedom. And it made space for women to talk to each other about issues that were affecting them through meetings and zines and music. It inspired teenage girls like the Yao sisters to start bands. But Wendy Yao pointed out that it wasn't always easy for young women, particularly young women of color, to navigate punk spaces. 
people just projected so immediately that we were so cute because we were Asian and we were teenagers and we were girls. And we would get made fun of a lot. People made a zine, a racist zine about us, anonymous racist zine that was like circulated in LA about us that like drew us with like slit eyes and that we get eaten by wolves and stuff. Riot Girl was this force that empowered women to stand up and literally scream about things that they had been taught to keep silent about for generations. June Millington said she couldn't even imagine writing songs the way Riot Girl bands did. They were saying the stuff that we wished we could say back then, although we didn't even think of it. Also, it was a movement started by mostly white women, and that didn't always feel inclusive to people of color who wanted to be a part of it. On this podcast, we're embracing both of these aspects of Riot Girl. We'll be digging into the hard stuff and shining a light on the contradictions within this powerful movement to see what we can learn. That was the first episode of OPB's new podcast, Starting a Riot, hosted by Fabi Reina. New episodes will be released every Thursday, and you can find them on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally today, producer Gemma DiCarlo joins me to read some of your recent feedback. Hi, Gemma. Hey, Jen. We recently talked with the owner of one of the last remaining drive-in movie theaters in Oregon, 99W in Newburgh, and we had a number of listeners who shared their memories with us, including Belinda Miller, who wrote, We took our Italian exchange student to the 99W, and it was one of her favorite parts of her stay. Bridget Backus McBride said she remembers, quote, pajamas, swings in front, popcorn, and summer night skies. Samantha Wojo wrote, we could, we would put a futon mattress in the back of the truck and blankets and watch movies. After we didn't have the truck, we'd use camp chairs and play till the movie started. I hope I can take my children soon. Linda from Portland shared a memory from when she was seven years old. I do remember seeing it's a mad, 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 mad world. And I want to say I thought that was one of the great movies to see at a drive-in theater. And, you know, it had a cast of many famous people. And so um, it was just fantastic. I will never forget it. It was such a memorable experience sitting in the back of my um, our bar station wagon, which was what today is called a mini Austin. Um, and there were four four girls sitting in the back, and it was a tiny car, but we were tiny and we just loved it. Alicia Sheberl said, My family grew up at the drive-in. The first movie I remember seeing was E.T. when I was seven. We love going to the 99W and try to make it when we can. But if we stay for both movies, we won't make it home until almost 2 a.m. And with two young kids, that next morning can be pretty rough. And Larry Makovina wrote, When I was in high school, the rumor ran rampant that the speakers at the local drive-in were actually two-way and the employees could listen to everything going on in your car. Turned out it was a couple of parents, but the drive-in owners still took a real economic hit until they were able to get the truth into the local weekly. We asked listeners for their favorite memories of Cycle Oregon, and a number of listeners responded. Adam Hill wrote, I was on the very first Cycle Oregon when I was just 14. When I signed up, I was the youngest writer. The other writers and the amazing volunteers I met made this experience unforgettable. Also, of course, the fun and sanity as they were constantly problem solving along the way due to unforeseen occurrences. However, without a doubt, my favorite memory is just getting to write it with my brother. And Nancy from Portland left us this voicemail. We went on the first ride 
and had a great time, but realized what was missing at Cycle Organ was beer. And as the owners of the first microbrewery in Portland, Bridgeport, we decided we'd just get everybody together, crew out together, and we all took off the week and and made a little pub every night at uh, wherever we were camping. And, of course, it was loved. <laughs> and we had so much fun. And especially going into those places, I remember out in eastern Oregon, where I had never been, and it was pretty desolate. And the people received us so well. And uh, here we are, you know, a bunch of Portland liberal hippie kind of people. Uh, and it was so nice, and we liked them, and we could talk, sit and talk to them. And uh, it was great. And Michael M. sent us this email. He wrote, I've done 20 of these rides all in succession. Cycle Oregon has changed my life in many ways and is the one goal for myself I recommit to every year. Michael went on to say, each one has filled my cup in ways I never expected. I am transformed as a person and see the larger role I have in humanity because of this ride. I will miss it. Thank you for making it the most gratifying, sensorial, community-driven experience I know of. I am grateful to your organization. We're always grateful for your comments, questions, and suggestions. Our voicemail number is 503-293-1983. You can also email us. Our address is thinkoutloud at opb.org. On Facebook, we're at OPBTOL. Thanks, Gemma. You're welcome, Jen. Tomorrow on the show, Pride Month is in full swing and people across Oregon are celebrating. We'll hear from LGBTQ leaders from the Gorge and Southern Oregon about what Pride means this year in the state's rural communities. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thank you very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Jen Chavez. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation. 